BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me Toby Tobias. Hello, Toby. Hello. How are you? No, I'm very well, thank you, and thank you for having me on the podcast. You're very welcome, you're very welcome. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to you from sunny East London on this lovely Sunday afternoon. Uh, well, I'm down in Devon, uh, where I like to spend my weekends, and it is a very nice uh, autumn afternoon. Good to hear, good to hear. Now, we've come together with these microphones and record button with uh, to talk about your movie Blood Orange. Indeed, yeah. Um, Do you want yeah. to give us a brief synopsis as to what that's about so people can get their head around it okay. first? Okay, um, so Blood Orange is a, a noir thriller um, set in sunny Ibiza, a very contained little movie um, starring Iggy Pop, playing a character not dissimilar to himself, but um, sort of uh, pushed pushed to a, a little bit of an extreme mm-hmm. um, with a very young, uh, very beautiful and rather promiscuous wife um, with a dark and shady past that begins to catch up with her where, where our movie begins. So it's, uh, it's a four-hander. It's um, a, a twisty noir thriller. Um, with a lot of sultry sunshine and gorgeous bodies and Iggy Pop being threatening, menacing and rather deadly. Indeed, indeed. Now, you wrote and directed this film, so let's start with the screenplay. Yeah. Um, wh- wh- where, does this, where does this screenplay get conceived in your mind? What's the starting point for you on this? Um, well, it, com- it, comes out of, uh, <laughs> it comes out of another a colleague of mine, a, a producer, um, basically getting very, very pissed off with me talking about the, the big movies that I'm trying to get off the ground um, and, and saying to me, look, just pull in the favours. You've got 20 years in the industry. Pull in the favours that you can, you can and go and make a movie. You know, two people in a room. Um, just get it out there on the festival circuit. It will make making your big ones a lot easier, which is pretty sage advice, to be honest. But I've never been able to write an idea that's two people in a room. Um, but I did come up with four people in a, 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 a millionaire's Ibethan mansion. So that was a little bit more achievable. Um, so, yeah, where did the idea come from? Um, a couple of things kind of came together. Uh, I was shooting a commercial in Nice. Um, and it was just very clear with the people who were around when we would go to for a meal after the shoot, et cetera, that there's a lot of older men with younger wives, um, mm-hmm. 
who may or may not be professional wives. And the cynic in me sort of look, <laughs> look, exactly, looks at them and goes, yeah, okay, you can see what's going on here. Um, and then I kind of don't like being cynical. Are you talking a lot of men in white linen suits? Yeah, that kind of thing. You know, you know guys who've, who've made their fortunes have probably been through two or three wives already. Um, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, you know, look. And, and we're getting into an area here where I stop myself and go, Look, don't be so cynical. Don't be so judgmental. There must be more to life than that. And, okay. I, and I thought it's an interesting area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, totally, yeah. And then I was watching Beware of Mr. Baker, which I just thought was a fantastic documentary. And it clicked that you go, OK, it's perfectly conceivable that Ginger Baker, Keith Richard, Mick Jagger, you know, Iggy Pop, David Bowie, a woman in her 20s who is um, culturally sophisticated um, on that scene, you know, may well fall in love genuinely with somebody who has the life experience, stories, charisma, etc. Forget the money. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, you could have a meeting of minds that's nothing to do with the generations. So I wanted to write a story where people come into it with the same cynical attitude that I was projecting on, on these, these couples I was seeing mm -hmm. um, and undermine that as quickly as possible and make them think again and then make them think again when you discover that actually she has a bit of a dark and dubious past where she's inherited money from a previous very wealthy guy. So you then go back to that um, you know, cynical premise of, of, of judgmental. She's a, she's a, a femme fatale bitch. And then you discover, no, actually, she really does genuinely love this guy. And you keep, you keep changing your mind. Um, and I just wanted to make people think about what they were judging and then leave them with a question at the end. So they can, depending on the way they read the movie, make their own mind up in several ways. Now, now you said you come to this from the, from the very, pragmatic point of view of let's let's make something that needs very few locations and very yeah. few people you then yeah. you then harness things you're observing in experiences you're getting in life and bring them into your story so what in, in sort of uh creating that that story world that you that you've come up with of yeah. the kind of femme fatale who who maybe or maybe doesn't have the right or wrong motivations and an aging rock star who may or may not be taken for a ride or really be in love what were the storytelling challenges for you coming sort of create weaving that web as it were uh well t the two things really are one after after you know creating an interesting setup and and getting people into the story is one thing mm -hmm. act act 2 where you where you're constantly um evolving the story and keeping the audience interested and bringing in new elements uh, that was, that was the big challenge because in a sense, I kind of knew how it started and I kind of knew how it ended and it could easily have been, um, half an hour, but to push the, the, the philosophies that each of them had to explore the characters within that and to try and do that within a genre, um, and, and only stray a little bit into other territory that that was the kind of that was the, the the challenge really to sustain that um and at the same time explore it without getting too up my own ass <laughs> so you're basically saying the the age-old problem of the meat of the film is act two and that's where all the challenges lie right? that's where you're going to take the audience they're either going to take you seriously or not aren't they in, in most yeah. in most stories yeah absolutely so um 
You've mentioned his name already. You you you've cast you cast Iggy Pop in the lead role of an aging rock star. Yeah. Um, obviously, that's also a description of who he is. Was yes. Was, <laughs> he's he's not he's not the person in the film literally, but in terms of as a basic as a basic template for uh, for your character, it wasn't ba- it wasn't a bad fit. So how how does how does a first feature writer director? I mean, you say you've also got your, your twenty years in the in, in, in working in other aspects of film and advertising and stuff, but but how how do you get someone like Iggy Pop into your film? I mean, this man he's not an actor per se. I mean, he's been in films. I remember seeing. Um, well, he did the voiceover um, in on um, Richard Stanley's movie, the um, yeah, yeah, Hardware. Um, you know, hardware. So, that's, so that's as back, that's as far back as nineteen ninety. So we're two thousand seventeen now. Oh, I mean, like he's got he's got he's got I think over a hundred film credits to his name, um, but most of them are small roles, um, little things with Jim Jarmusch, mm. um, like Dead Man and Coffee and Cigarettes and stuff. Yeah. Um, so you know. Th- the, Iggy, does, Iggy did a little interview for us where he explained that, you know, he's had a SAG card for over 30 years. Mm. And be- before he hangs it up, he wanted to do something that he could actually be proud of in terms of his own performance. Um, and, you know, he described that the first few films that he did, he brought his stage persona to it. And it was just too big. Um and he found you know, the, the guys in, 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 in my movie, a couple of rather trained actors and Casey, who has been acting professionally since she was nine. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they're all very seasoned uh, screen actors, despite being quite young. So he was in an environment w- which was which was small, contained. They all lived together. And we had we had another um, uh, you know, gorgeous, gorgeous house just across the road that, that they all stayed in for the time that we were shooting. And they worked the script together, you know, and, and Iggy found the challenge of being amongst actors and bringing his large stage persona down to a small screen or not small screen but big screen but into a screen you know cinematic uh element an an exciting challenge um how do we get him uh quite simply i I sent i gave the script to the casting director and we'd had a few conversations about actors that we thought could play the role of of, of a rock star um and the question naturally came up well why don't we look at some of the rock stars who have acted you know people like roger daltrey mm. um uh you know and and you, you kind of come up with lots of different names and instantly all of those names bring a certain tone to the film right and that and so you know the thoughts were at the time you know obviously roger daltrey's one one call and he would have been fantastic he was on tour with the who um you know we didn't go out to anybody until we decided on who it was but we these were the explorations um the concept of of sting came up and you immediately go Okay, I see that as a very, very different movie. Um, very, much so, very, much so. <laughs> very much so. And and so yeah, no, so he he, despite the fact that he's a fine actor and has done some really great work, would have been wrong for the part. And and rather than casting an actor, um, you're you're choosing someone who brings a certain history of who they are to the role. Mm. Um, you know, as I mentioned, Ginger Baker was a starting point for the character, but for God's sake, working with Ginger Baker in the documentary, you know, the director got beaten up. I was, I was not about to even begin to risk thinking about that, but it, <laughs> yeah. just, I'm just trying to imagine directing Ginger Baker. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> but, 
you know, you, then when Iggy's name came, well, I, I suggested Iggy, and and we thought about it, and it was, you know, instantly you've got that danger, mm. okay, because he brings danger to 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 everything that that he does. Um, he's got he's got a history of unpredictability. Um, you know, he is the seminal inf- influence on on punk. So you go, okay, this is a no uncompromising. Um, in your face, larger than life character who actually embodies all of the philosophy that the character that I wrote has. Although mm. I didn't write it for Iggy, when the minute you put Iggy into that place, you go, okay, this totally fills all of those ideas and brings more to it. Um, and yeah, because it doesn't, it doesn't rely on exposition, then, does it? You go, you look exactly. at, you look at him, and you believe he's this person because obviously exactly. he's lived yeah, it. Hasn't, he's lived it, hasn't he? I suppose. Exactly, and and you know, and and I I didn't write any any particular exposition, um, but you know, it's the it's the most boring thing that you can have on on, on film. So to have somebody who requires none was perfect, and um, uh, I, he obviously you know when he receives a script, um, the casting director as Jeremy Zimmerman, who's been around for many many years, right. um, so that was that was obviously taken seriously, and and having a established casting director helps a first time feature filmmaker get his script to the right people. So that was, that was one thing. Um, Iggy read it, um, thought about it for a few weeks. His management came back with some questions. Um, questions were, you know, what's, what's Toby done in the past? So I sent him a short film that I, that I'd made that, um, starred Tom Burke, who's currently in J.K. Rowling or what's her name, Gil Braith's or other pseudonym on the, on the TV. He's the lead in that. Okay. Um, and that was his first role out of Rada. And, um, you know, Iggy watched that and he really liked it. And he also really liked the way I'd used music. And I wrote him, um, wrote him a letter to explain that I, you know, I understand that if he took this role, that actually the music in the film would undoubtedly be connected with in the audience's mind who he is and so um i introduced him to the composer i sent him some rough mixes of the early themes that we were working with told him about the musical influences that we were going to bring to the to the film and he had the short film and um he liked he liked the way i was approaching it he liked the way i was talking to him he was in london we met um, he had a few questions and um, I walked away from that meeting feeling quite good. And then I got a call from the casting director saying, yeah, he's in. So, yeah, that was the process of getting Iggy. So then when when you're on set and you're in your, your I mean, it's beautiful. I mean, anyone that gets to see it, you'll see it's a beautifully, uh, almost like idyllic place. The uh, the, the, the house that you, you do mm. it in, in Ibiza, there's, you know, lovely white walls, great open vistas and, and the place itself is, you know, is it contained and intimate while being surrounded by the wild, isn't it? I suppose with a good way to describe it. You yeah, it's, in a sense, it's it's almost like um, it, it, visually it became like the most gorgeous prison you could imagine. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a good way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is a stunning house. Um, it's it's glass white. Um, you know, beautiful pool, infinity pool, and you know, and every single element of, of it is 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 totally premium. But there's a starkness about it, an austereness about it, and 
because outside it's also lush but dry in that Spanish kind of heat. Mm. Um, you know, there's a, there's a sort of a yellow ochre kind of tinge to the exteriors there, and inside it's white, it's mm. clinical, and the the house, the interior of the house becomes more and more oppressive as the film goes on. So it, it kind of became a character of its own. No, it's totally great. It's totally great. And, and in that sense, what were your conversations like with your with your DOP? About because obviously, to, to, when when you're dealing with a sort of contained location, it means that you get you're going to end you're naturally going to end up with with an element of repetition. So, how how do you, as a filmmaker, and your conversation with cinematographer, go in terms of let's how do we make this interesting? What were you what were you thinking of in terms of other films? What were you thinking of in terms of what you wanted to achieve? Um. Okay, so we sat. It's so a Mark Patton. Um, it was his first first feature. He he went on to do a few a few. He was doing features and, and dramas now. Um, working with with um, Luke Scott. Um, he's just finished um, Taboo. He lit Taboo. Oh wow! Um, uh, but that you know, as I say, it was his first feature. We'd worked together on commercials before then. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, we had uh, we had a conversation and. We we both agreed that ultimately we're this is like a chamber piece. It could mm-hmm. almost be it could almost be a theatre piece in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, the architecture of the house is absolutely critical, uh, and you're right. You know how do you avoid repetition? Which I I, I hope that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ways the way in which we approached it were a couple of things. Um, first of all, we looked at certain films like Lapicine. Um, uh you know sexy beast was an influence as well um but there were there are a number of films from the 70s that that we we watched and then we discussed he we, uh, i i said to him look we've got 3 weeks mm-hmm. um to shoot this film we've got iggy for um 13 days we've got um you know a small contained crew one location um but nonetheless you know making 90 minutes in 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 less than 3 weeks is a big ask because it means you're shooting something like 8 9 minutes of screen time every day yeah 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 now you know when you're both coming from a, a from a, a school of commercials where you're generally used to shooting 30 seconds over 2 days that's <laughs> <laughs> that's quite a challenge so there were certain things that went out the window i um and this is both for budget reasons practical reasons and style reasons no grips um no dollies no cranes nothing that is going to slow the camera up okay, but i don't that's interesting I don't want to go handheld. I don't. I I have a personal bugbear with sort of shaky, wobbly cam, long mm-hmm. lens stuff, because to me, it makes you aware of the camera. It puts you in the position of a voyeur and and prevents you from fully immersing. Mm-hmm. I like I like a, a I like a more classical style. Um, and if you look back at the films of the seventies, essentially the the rule there was. Let the camera follow the action and don't make the camera uh, do something stylistic and, you know, eye candy for the sake of it. Mm. You, know, you set a frame you and when you cut, you cut because you have a reason to punctuate or emphasize or tell something in a new way. So we would we would, you know, we, we spent the first three days on set with the actors blocking the scenes out and going, okay, this is where we're going to shoot that. This is where we're going to shoot that. How, you know, what are our angles? Um, let's try not to repeat anything. Um, 
and essentially, you know, it was kind of worrying for three days to um, be rehearsing in the location with cameras testing and not shooting anything at all um, mm-hmm. as, as you know, three weeks ticks by. But um, it was it was the best decision that we made, because when we came to uh, start shooting, we'd answered so many questions and we weren't suddenly thinking, oh, God, we've been here before this, you know, or, you know, how, what do we cut to here? Um, so, yeah, you know, Mark was Mark was in, in incredibly helpful in embracing the challenges of limited lighting mm-hmm. of no grips just just two cameras and letting the actors do the work but finding something cinematic in every setup and you know i think he's done an amazing job for for me the fact that we had less money than we'd shoot one commercial with to shoot for three weeks um but still deliver the same production value that you look at it and you you know i'll, I'll be quite honest now and say you know we spent less than two hundred thousand pounds to bring it to the screen including buying all the usage rights and paying the actors so you know when you do the maths you realize there's very very little money to to shoot with you know you're, you're feeding people you're flying people to 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 ibiza um you know the the art department costs the raw costs of disposable stuff you know, quickly mounts up. Mm-hmm. So £200,000 doesn't get you very far. Um, but I I would say that, you know, the film certainly looks much more like a million quid or more on screen, but just simply because we chose such, you know, high quality stuff to put in front of the lens and let the lens you know, settle in a way that, you know, you, you, know, you look at it and if it, it's nice to look at. No, it is. It's a very beautiful film, and you know, it's it's Thanks. it's uh, and 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 the the contrast between that that sort of arid, dry Spanish island and the uh, what do you call it uh, stark white of the building is 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 beauty. You know, it's beautifully brought together in the, the different ways that you use those two elements, and you use them, and in the story that it's it's evident why what that contrast. Um, so in in. in Thinking of Iggy Pop not being an actor, and obviously you, you've, you've mentioned your, your two other your two other main characters, um, Casey Clark and, and Ben Lamb, um, being being trained actors. How does that affect how you? I mean, and, it, and, and there's only one other actor in the film. You've got Antonio Margo as well. Yeah, yeah. How? So there's a level of intensity from their point of view and your point of view as the director. But obviously, you're dealing with different skill sets, aren't you? Because obviously, like, like we've said, Iggy Pop's played these small parts and largely being Iggy Pop in a film. Whereas, you know, you wanted you you you, you want him to be this character, and they're playing opposite him. So how how do you how does that work for you as a director? How do you change tack, or do you do it? Do you indeed need to change tack, or is it? Is uh, yeah, well, you know, the the, the 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 dynamic behind the camera is incredibly complex. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was Mike Figgis who who said that he spends most of his time on set being a uh, you know a, a psychologist or a therapist than he does being a director. <laughs> um, and and in all honesty, you know, there is a huge amount of of um, Understanding the different needs of the actors mm-hmm. that that's required to get the best out of them in every way. So, you know, in the case of Casey, um, she's required to do several nude scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, she's required required to be attacked sexually, um, and also 
um, play a part that is ambiguous, bold and challenging. And we had quite a lot of um, chat before before we got to, to the shoot, um, just talking about the history of the character, where she came from, why she made the choices that she made. You know, we went into, into a lot of ground together, so she knew the character I wanted and the reasons why I wanted it. Um, because, you know, quite frankly, what, you know, the first three minutes of the film, you think, okay, this is, this is sexploitation. This is, you know, this is, um, playing within the genre. And then the minute you get past those first three minutes, it then begins to, to undermine all everything you've thought of. Um, but it does require an actress to be to trust you a great deal to take a close off every time you ask to you know and to be put in that in the in the situations that she's put in so you've got to approach her with a level of understanding and sensitivity um at the same time Iggy is um a character who is immensely confident as a human being and and hugely charismatic and understanding charming and, and you know but at the same time, he's a fish out of water. Mm. He's not got his entourage. He's not going on tour. He's not doing the machine that he knows so well. He's waiting offset, being brought on set to, to, to work in our environment. And so there's a different sensitivity that you need to bring to working with him. Um, you need to be totally on your game. You know, at the point where we brought Iggy on set, we had to be completely ready. There's, there's no faffing and, you know, last minute changes. We had to make sure, you know, that it was October. Although it looks like high summer, it was October. At night, Ibiza can get quite cold. Mm-hmm. Um, Iggy physically, uh, has a few ailments. You know, he's got one leg that's, that's two inches shorter than the other that's put an enormous strain on, on his hip and back over the years. He's most of the time in a lot of pain. Um, so, and while he's such a professional that he'll keep going and keep going and keep going and push himself, at the end of the day, you don't want to you don't want to push him so far that the next day he can't work. You yeah, I was need- going to say you don't want to break him, do you? That's not no. Good. And and you need to be thinking about what his limits are for that for 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 that length of time that you've got him, and and you know play it as wisely as you can because. He's got to go through, you know, three weeks of fairly arduous shooting. And in, in, in some cases, actually, actually, a lot of it was quite physically demanding on him. And mm. as I say, it, it's, it's one thing to go on stage with all the adrenaline of, of, of performing in front of 60,000 people. That feeds you. Going on set in front of, you know, 25 people who've got, who are more concerned with their own focus marks or, or or where the light's hitting or you know um they're not they're not here adoring you you've got a there's so there's no natural adrenaline that's gonna get you through that day so working working with that dynamic working with Casey's dynamic and then you've got Antonio and Ben mm. who you could easily forget about because you're going okay you guys are professionals you're grown-ups you know what you're doing I've got enough problems on my hands without thinking of you but <laughs> But you need to make sure that they are as feel emotionally as cared for and as thought about because they're concerned about making sure that their performances are excellent, are what you want, are what they're doing, you know. And and so everybody has to have that focus. Everybody has to feel held in that environment and protected in that environment. And, you know, I've, I've always felt that, 
it's really important that crews understand that once you're ready to turn over, that the protected space of performance is totally respected. And what we're all doing behind the camera is leading up to a point where you can go and action and then allow whatever magic to happen um, in a space that, that that is that is safe because you're asking people, especially in a film like this, to expose vulnerabilities. Um, so yeah, it, yeah. No, I I always think that that, that that shooting films, even even when they don't sort of touch into touch into sort of more vulnerable situations in front of camera that yours do, it's like, it always seems like the oh every single shoot. Every single thing you shoot where you've got people in front of the camera is always a big trust exercise because you're having to explain what you want. There's an agreement of what you're going to get. And then when the camera rolls, it's all down to them, isn't it? In, yeah, in all, it's a huge amount of trust. And and I can't tell you, know, look, I've, I've worked in most roles behind the camera for many, many years and, and seeing how directors either get the best or not out of both their crew and their and their actors um you, sh- you should never underestimate the weight and responsibility that the um you know you have as a director because you are you are the energy you set the tone you set the momentum you you create the confidence and if you haven't got the confidence if you don't know what you're doing if you are angry arrogant you know brusque um you know, that creates an atmosphere which inevitably seeps into the, both the end result, but also undermines your ability to get the best out of each moment and, and push when you need to push hard. People respect that you're doing it for the right reasons. Mm. Now, now you, you, I think we were saying before we, before we start recording that, that, that uh, you shot this, you shot this in 2014. You were, yeah. you were taking it to market in 2015. Yeah. Um, Metrodome got involved and then Metrodome back in, I think, August last year, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, announced bankruptcy, which obviously leaves you in a, in an awkward position with a film. And then and I've spoken to other filmmakers, uh, who, who fell foul to the same, the same situation. But so what happens there with it when, 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 when you're, when you're sort of left, you're left holding a film that doesn't have a home, but is, is somehow stuck in somebody uh, else's bankruptcy? Um, well, uh, it, it's it's immensely frustrating um, because there's, there's you know Metrodome Metrodome when you know they, they had a they had a great reputation you know mm-hmm. the early the early days of Metrodome were dynamic some of the films that they put out there were fantastic I mean the, I don't know if 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 your listeners have got the memories to go back to a company like Palace Pictures but. You know, Palace to me were such a fantastic company, and Metrodome were the closest thing to to replicate what Palace were doing. Mm. That I was really excited by by you know Metrodome being a part of it. And although at the time, you know, when when they picked us up, they did say we can't afford to throw the money behind a theatrical release, but we will make sure that you know we we give you a good DVD release and and you know get you out in the press, etc. Um, when shortly after it was released, I think it was like about two weeks later, they announced bankruptcy. It was absolutely gutting. God. Um, you know, so, but 
Okay, so we did get a small theatrical release because um, I, I made sure that that happened. I spoke to cinema chains themselves directly. Um, I cut deals with, with cinemas. Um, the, and independents like um, the Regent Street, Regent Street Cinema, where we did our premiere, we, we did a small little run there. Um, because ultimately I needed to give this film the credentials that a theatrical release does. You know, I know, you know, in order to get this out there and to get posters on tubes and to get all of that kind of awareness, you need to throw, you know, a hundred thousand pounds at the project, which nobody had, nobody mm. could raise that. But by, by getting, making sure that we had at least, you know, a, 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 about a dozen screenings, um, in different cinemas, that meant that, that it could be announced for the critics to make sure that, um, you know, the good critics like, um, Empire, um, you know, like Wendy Eyed and The Guardian, um, you know, decent critics came to the screening, that they, they wrote about it, that enabled Metrodome to do a DVD release and, and, and get more, um, awareness of the movie without spending pretty much any money on, on publicity. So, yeah, that, that was all working really well. And, yeah, and then as I say, you know, two weeks into the DVD release, they announced bankruptcy and, um, essentially a, a company called 101 have picked up a lot of their library. Yeah. So at the moment you can buy the film on Amazon, for example. Okay. And, Yes, ultimately, um, in about six months, I think 101 will be reporting to, to us and showing us how many DVD sales that they've made. So after, after the initial expenses get taken off of manufacturing, et cetera, yeah, we will ultimately get, um, get to see probably about, you know, 20 pence, 30 pence in the pound from the DVDs that people buy. So yeah, um, it's out there. And yes, we we lost the we lost um, the library of of Metrodome and the opportunities there. But you know, one hundred and one may well um, be uh, be able to do something in terms of library, etc. So down the line, who knows what will happen? It's still there. Um, the way it affected us is at the point where we could do with that ongoing marketing, that ongoing um, conversation, that's where, you know, it, it died and it got, it got lost. So, so it was, it was, a, it was more of a momentum kill as much as anything else for what, what you would build, what you built up behind the film. Up yeah, to, exactly. Got you, got you. Exactly. So let's look, just to be clear then. So how, how can, how can people see Blood Orange at the moment? Um, well, if they've got Sky Cinema, then it's part of their package. They can just search for it on Sky. Um, if they if they want to buy a DVD, it's available um, through Amazon. Okay. Or if they want if they want to really help the filmmaker, they can go on Vimeo and um, and and pay to either stream it on demand or download it and keep a copy. Um, we've put it out there. At, I think three pounds thirty three. Um, to stream it or four pounds fifty to download and own it. So, um, but you know, that's for, for us, that's the best way because then the money will begin to come back and pay for the, the, the cost of making it, which we still haven't managed to recoup. Okay. Well, look, well, we'll put a link to your Vimeo in, um, in the show notes. Thank you. Uh, so thank you very much for, uh, coming on the podcast. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. 
or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you.